What has happened in Sefer Vaikra so far? Should we do the, our, our typical summary? Yes. To yes, just to, sure. just to collect. So you can also answer this question. Right, because this. it's very, very, very important. Yeah, well, yeah, you don't before I even get to the summary. One of the complaints I had with the way we were taught Humash or the Torah or any of the texts of, of, the, of the Tanakh when we were growing up no, when I was growing up in school, was that they never taught us the text with a bird's eye view. Everything was always pasuk by pasuk. And then what they would do is, you learn a pasuk, and they would give you like 15 commentaries on the pasuk. And then by the time you're done with the commentary, you forgot what that pasuk had to do with the previous pasuk. So instead of reading it like an intelligible book, you read it as a collection of individual statements that had no relation to one another. I mean, I'm exaggerating to, the, to an extent, but, but you read it as a collection of statements that had no relationship to one another, and then you miss the deeper meaning of it altogether. So, um, I, almost to a fault, we try to go in the opposite direction. We stick very closely to the text. Anytime you give me an idea, I say it's from the Midrash, so I bat it away. No, I'm kidding. But, uh, but, but, um, that's what we try to do. Now, what happened in Sefer Vaikra so far? So Vaikra has so far been a book. It, it started because we, we completed the construction of the Mishkan at the end of Sefer Shemot. Right? At, at, in the process of Sefer Shemot, we realized that we needed a physical way of connecting to God. And then, um, I don't know, maybe put the table in front of it. You want to put the table in front of it and then come around this side? What? I know, no, because no, it's just a crack open. It's bothering me. Yeah, OCD. Okay, so, so we decided at the end of Shemot that we need a physical structure through which to serve God. And then, uh, as a result, once we finished building that structure at the end of Sefer Shemot, we went, this structure became the meeting place between the Jewish people and the divine. Now, that meeting between the Jewish people and the, the divine, at any time, people relate to God or live their lives with God, they meet with God or they live their life with God or they, they do all of their actions with the, with the understanding of God's presence, that is called Kedusha. Okay, that, that, that is called Kedusha. So the book of, of Haikra, after the completion of the Mishkan, becomes the book of Kedusha. Kedusha in all of its aspects. So the whole first half of Haikra had to do with the Kedusha of the Mishkan or the laws of the Mishkan, so the different korbanot that could be that could be brought. It introduced us to the different basic korbanot that could be brought. Now, did it command us to bring korbanot in the first half of Aikra? No, it didn't say these are the korbanot that you should bring on this day. On this day, the whole first half of Aikra was more focused on the temple. It was more focused on the temple. So the, the ideas and the teachings of the Korbanot were brought in the context of introducing us to the basic concepts of the temple. Okay? So, one, so it's very important to know the different categories of Korbanot that are possible. And really the whole first half of Baikra didn't focus on individual behavior at all. It was just introducing us to the Kiddushah of the temple and the rules surrounding that, that Kiddushah, meaning what... what or what, how does that system of Kiddushah work? So even the laws of Tum'ah, for the most part, it wasn't a command not to become Tameh. It was an explanation of what the types of Tum'ah are. Now, who is going to be commanded not to become Tameh? 
Just the Kohanim. The Kohanim, the regular Kohanim and the Kohanim. But that's going to happen. What are they doing? What's our, our class? There's a tight here. No, no, they're just trying to tighten it, I think, to make it less, okay. less noisy. No, no, I think they just want to tighten it and make it less noisy. Okay, keep going. Okay. It's good, it's good. Okay. Sorry, I can't even uh, pause this. This is, a, this is a biracha, you know. This building is is being used. Every single square foot of the building study. is being used at all times. Not sure. It's and and we're, the biggest the biggest problem in this building is that there's no room for anything. Everything is being used at all times. Like right now, there's a minyan upstairs. I think there's a minyan downstairs. There is a shoe on that side and there's a shoe here. So you can't even get into the building without interrupting a shoe. Okay. It's a big bracha. So nothing, nothing to complain about. Mashallah. No, nothing, nothing to complain about. So, Yagdil uh, Torabi Adir. So, so, so all of the... We see... All the introductions to the, all the concepts that relate to the Mikdash are in the first half of Vaikra, but we don't see many commands or, or demands on the behaviors of people. That we say for the second half of Vaikra. Okay, so the first half of Vaikra, we introduced all the types of Korbanot, the different types of Tum'ah, and then the uh, Yom Kippur service, which is a specific service that has to do with the Mikdash and is... is Kind of an explanation into what the Holy of Holies, what role the Holy of Holies plays in the life of the Kohen Gadol and in the life of the Jewish people. But then once we finish the introduction to the Mikdash as a place of Kiddushah and all of the headlines and the details that come with it, we now turn to a different type of holiness, which is the holiness of the individual, holiness of character, of behavior. And that was with the, that, it, that started with the sexual laws. So why would it start with the sexual laws? What's so important about the sexual laws? Because the sex drive is probably the most fundamental drive. If, you, if, you take, if I want to take you back to the story of Adam and Chava, the, the whole problem with humanity, if you want to get philosophical, and what we, when we did get philosophical with the story of Adam and Chava, was that when humans developed intelligence above and beyond the animal kingdom, and they were now able to imagine a future and see into the future, the thing that humans deal with that animals don't is concern for their individual mortality. As, as humans develop intelligence, they develop, an individual, they develop an individual self that's separate from the animal community that they're part of. And that individual self, looking to the future, sees the potential for mortality. And then becomes very scared. And in fact, the philosophers debate what's the most basic anxiety that's the mother of all anxieties. And the, one of the philosophers named Ernest Becker, uh, I think he's like 1970s, his claim was that it's this fear of death. That's the most fundamental fear. As a result of the fear of death, procreation becomes a, a very, very deep and important institution in the life of, uh, in the mind of the man because that's man's key to somewhat earning his immortality. And the sex drive and all of the desires that come with it, they stem from that very, very, very deep place of concern for the mortality. And this is all very philosophical, but 
you could ask me about it afterwards if you want to um, delve into it more, okay? So the sex drive becomes a very, very fundamental, and the problem with the sex drive is that while it could be used for a person to be able to live on, it's also very similar to the, what the animal kingdom does in order to procreate, and, and, it's, and it's also very tied to the animal side. So you have the option of, of debasing yourself and becoming like an animal, or elevating the sexual impulse and doing it in the context of marriage, and the context of giving, and the context of kids, and that is how you take an animalistic behavior and imbue it with kedusha. So, being that that's the most, let's say, the most fundamental drive, and the one, probably the drive that most seduces people into sin, that's where we started with when we're talking about uh, kedusha of the individual. And from kedusha of the individual, we then went to kedusha of everything, kedusha of every person's behavior in every aspect of life. So that was what Parsha Kedoshim was about. Parsha Kedoshim introduced us to how living with God is not just something that affects your interactions with the Mikdash. And it's not just something that affects your sexual behavior, it's something that affects every last behavior. And when you're walking in the way of God, everything you do will be different fundamentally from the person who does not walk with God. We're going to discuss this more at length by the end of the parasha because there's a key, key story at the end of this week's parasha which points us in the direction of what happens when you, let's say, have the opposite of that. When you take someone who denounces God, what happens then? Wow. Okay, but that's, so that's a discussion for the end of the parasha. It denounces to blaspheme, to curse. So that was parasha Kedoshim. Uh, and then we, we, came, we came up to Parashat Emor, which so far what we did this week in our, in our class that you could find on Apple Podcasts, was that besides for the Kedushah that applied to the individual, there are a few more layers of behavior that are demanded of the Kwanim. And, and though we introduced the concept of Tumah before, we didn't say who is allowed to become Tameh and when, and if it's a problem to become Tameh. And what it seems like it from, from reading the text of the Kwanim is that for most of us, or almost all of us, there's really no problem of becoming Tameh. That's not, that's not an issue. If I want to go to the Mikdash, then I become Tahor. Then I, become, then I make sure I'm pure. But if I'm not going to the Mikdash, it's okay. there, there's no problem. Now, who is it a problem for to become Tameh? The, the Kohen and the Kohen Gadol, because they're the ones who are serving in the Mikdash. So for them, they can't become Tameh. And that's what our parasha was about so far, Parashat Emor. And how, why is this beginning of Parashat Emor different from last time we spoke about Tum'ah? Because last time we just spoke about the concept, general, the general idea. The what, is, what are the rules in this system of Tum'ah? But now we are saying, all right, now in your personal behavior, how are you supposed to behave? Do you have to avoid Tum'ah? Or wonder what circumstances you have to avoid Tuma. And again, the conclusion is that it's the Kohen who avoids Tuma, and nobody else really has such an obligation. Now, the Kohen Gadol, being that he is most elevated, has even the highest. But the, the thing that I'd like to focus on, and what we said at the earlier Shiurim, is that if you notice, the list of things that the Kohanim have to do in order to maintain their Kiddushah is very small. Because really, there's pr- almost no difference between the way a Kohen should behave and the way a regular person should behave. This is a huge, it's revolutionary idea in the Torah, because if you know pagan cultures, the Kohanim did all these rituals and this and that, and there's a hierarchic structure to society in which you had the priestly class that had all the money and all the wealth and all the still, duties and all the, all the rituals and all the rites, and then nobody else would really do anything. I mean, they would, in fact, want to keep the populace in the dark because the less educated your population is, the easier it is for them to control, to be controlled or to control, for the Kwanim to control them. 
Yadud doesn't believe in that. Yadud values the education of the people and it believes that, no, no, there's no, we barely have a priestly class. Now, as to your question, one of the details that came up in the behavior of the priestly class is that as a priest cannot do service in the Mikdash if he has a blemish. If he has a messed up eye, if he has a broken leg, lame, maimed, any of these things. And there's a whole list. And it's, the list is like uh, endless. So you, I think that one of the, um, one of the perushim is that it applies to any blemish that, that's considered yeah. bad. Okay? So your, what was your question on that? Your question is, is how is that fair to the Kohen? How is that fair to the person that has a blemish? It's not, it's, it's not their fault, obviously. So now there are, there are the two... Message is so the message, the message it sends as follows. When the Kohanim are not doing the service on their own behalf. Who are they doing the service for? For B'nai Israel. Yes. They're representing the Jewish people in their, in their attempts to communicate with Boreola. And, and by the way, that, the whole reason we even have to institute that is because if you allow everybody to commu- communicate with Boreolam and bring Korbanot on their own, okay. you have a free-for-all. And you have a, it, so you have, you have the Kohanim in order to make the institution, solidify the institution and make sure it's, it's, it's preserved. But at the end of the day, the Kohanim represent the people. So it's not as much a, a question about the individual Kohen. There's no actual problem with the individual Kohen. But you have to look at it from a societal point of view. If we are going to send of our people to represent us in our communications with Borei Olam, in a way we have to send, we have to send the best. people with the, that are the best. It's the equivalent law that we see by Korbanot. We send, when we bring a korban, can you bring a korban with a messed up ear? No, or with a, with a, with a scar, or a gigantic be. scar? Of course not. You can't, can you bring an animal that's lame? No. Because that shows a sign of disrespect to God. So even though we understand that there's no inherent problem with the person who has a blemish, when we are sending a representative of the people to, to communicate with God, we send people who have a clean, you know, who are, who are, who are salim, you know, who are 100%... Uh, whole and their bodies, they don't. Their their bodies are whole. Okay. It's just a sign of respect. Are we, allow, are we allowed to argue? Or <laughs> you can you can argue. Sure. I mean, what what, no, what do you think? It's not the argument. Honestly, I'm, it's very hard to accept what you're saying. What 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 not you're saying? What is said? You know, in the in the point that you know, I thought that when you have a client that's communicating to Hashem, Hashem is not a, a material God. He's not a superficial Correct. God. Is looking for the purity of the heart and the mind, you know, Correct. and that's what he wants. So a guy can have a blemish on his ear, or a, a not have an eye, or something like that, but be pure in their heart and their mind, and that's really what we want to. You are right. You are right. So, now, now, when you're dealing with the individual service of God, meaning me in my personal life, right. me as I'm praying Amida and Kanisa, that's that's the ultimate. That's the most important thing: the purity of the mind. However, when you're talking public service. When you're doing things in public on behalf of the community, there are certain rules you put in place for the sake of setting the tone or, 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 or uh, setting an example for the community. And the community plays by different rules than the individual. We hold the community should do things in a way that they preserve a standard that you don't necessarily, that don't necessarily match the standard that's preserved by the individual in his own relationship with God. So what message does it send to the individual who goes to the Beit HaMikdash and is watching the people do the service if the person who's bringing the korban is, wa- is hopping around on crutches? It's like, who, why did we put him? Let's put someone who can walk. It's, this is not respectful. 
What it does is that the person who ends up coming to the Mikdash and he sees that all of the Kohanim look good and are elegant, it, it says, wow, this is how we communicate. This is how we serve Borei Olam. You know? I, 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 like, I like that point better. In other words, if you put that into perspective, it's a little bit opposite of what you said originally. You said that the Kohanim are the representatives of people mm-hmm. uh, in front of God. Mm-hmm. But maybe we should just put it backward the other way. Kohanim are the representatives of God in front of people. Because this way, if you see a flaw in the Kohanim, people think that, God forbid, Hashem has a flaw. Because they are representatives of God. Maybe that would be a better way to, to understand this issue. I, that, I, uh, I, understand, I understand, but I just always question. Because the me- it sends almost like a message of superficiality. You know, that it shouldn't be in the Torah. I understand your point. I understand what you're I, I fully understand your point. And probably the masses, that's what they're looking for because that's the first natural reaction. So, oh, beautiful person, purity in God. So that means by default, when somebody is not beautiful or pure, they look down. So that's right, the right. wrong message. Okay, it's, it's, a it's a very good point. You're making, it's a, it's a solid argument and, and there's logic on both sides. Right. Um, the only thing I would compare it to is the other law, which is the parallel law, which is the law of the animal that can't have a, a, a blemish. Yes, you would agree that that makes sense, right? That if you're going to make an you offer to God, you can't, God. Take, you can't take a bad animal and offer it to God, correct? I still, I, I might question does, that does too. Your, does your argument extend even to that? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. There. No, because you have to I'm look just, at that, it's, it's all a package. It's all a package. Yes. Yes. I mean, I mean, uh, let, yeah. no, no, you could, you could differentiate between the two, but I'm saying you would agree that at least there is merit to the argument to not bring an, a blemished animal to the Mikdash, correct? Even a blemished animal, if an animal, if an animal has a, a spot on it, it's considered blemished. I don't know. I mean, you have to get into the laws of what the, what the blemishes are. Oh. So, so let's say it's a, it's a missing leg. Okay, let's, let's take an extreme. Let's take, let's take an extreme case, just, okay. just to, for the sake of argument. So you would agree that there, it makes sense, right? By the animal that we're going to offer, animal that's unblemished, right? Uh, look, even, even, take it even in a simpler case. What's more valuable, an animal that has a leg or an animal that doesn't have a leg? So if I'm a farmer and I'm going to offer something to God, should I offer him my cheap animal or my expensive animal? That's Again, we're introducing material. <laughs> in the Torah there shouldn't be any material I, I mean I mean, look if you're, if you're making you're it at the end of the day so he's teaching you you can take no no you could take the argument and say alright so um, by donating lots of money to Kenny Son Yom Kippur we're showing our kids that it's very important to make a lot of money and that we're training them in the ways of materialism I mean you could take this argument to places where like yeah, at some point, you could use material items to show respect to God, and it may give off, if you misinterpret an impression, that material is the most important thing. But it's also just a sign of respect. Also for Shabbat, the, for the, 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 the table of the Shabbat has to be beautiful, has to be inviting. So, so I, I think... I'm not naive to that point. I understand, yeah, 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 what, I'm I understand a, what you're saying. But I just see that... I question it. That's why. That's what it is. Yeah, it's a good question. You have a fair, yeah. have a fair point. It's not a... But what I think the, the whole idea is more that when, whatever you're standing in front of Hashem has to be your best. Okay, Shabbat, from you your, put your best, best suit on, you dress up, best. you make sure you're clean, yeah. you present yourself. You're elevating also. The, and when the community as a collective is standing before God, 
we present God with, the, with our best. Now, internally, is it our best? No, obviously not. It, that depends on the person's mind. Yeah. But, but in terms of, is it, is it nice to have, to have in the Beit HaMikdash, to have people that have, are missing legs and amputated limbs and this and that? Is it fair to the Kohanim? No, but it's not like the Kohen is, is not allowed to, doesn't get the benefits of Kuna. It's, 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 it's still a Kohen. Be, it could also be interpreted like, oh wow, what a beautiful religion we have that we look beyond uh, somebody not having a leg, but their purity of their heart we, and their we mind. Do, we do. We do. I mean, do I, can, I can go on forever. I know, I know, no. I know. It's, it's, it's a beautiful. I get we, it. we do do that right. in our individual relationship with God, right. but there are rules when you're dealing with the community. Mm where you set the tone in certain things, meaning we always do this, even in community life. We, we, the rabbis in the community, the ones that actually deal with halakhic questions, like I don't, I don't have anything to do with that. But like Rabbi Moshe, Rabbi Chaim, when they're setting rules for the community, they will set the tone with laws that are a lot more strict than are actually necessary in the individual case. So you set the tone with how a community is supposed to approach God with a very conservative approach and then you look case by case to see is this something that can you know that you can play with, you know. So you'll I don't know. I mean there there are hundreds of things where that where Rabbi Chaim will come and he will say no this is the law, and then somebody comes with a specific case and he says okay look in your case like we we this is I, I understand your situation this is what you could do. So I, I think it's a very common thing. There's always a distinction between communal. Uh, order and then and the individual relationship with God. The individual relationship with God is going to be a lot more. It's more pure. It's going to represent. It's going to be a lot more real. The communal interaction with God is almost like a way of creating a culture. So the culture we're trying to create is a culture of we bring our best to God. We have utmost respect for the sanctity of the, of the temple. Okay, so we don't bring things that are that are that have a, a problem. That's good. So we and how am I supposed to know what's in the person's mind if he's pure or not? So we do we do with what we what we can see, which is the person's physical uh, condition. All right, uh, it, it's a it's a valid argument, and it's a it's very a, valid. No, I I love the discussion, um, but there 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 are two sides of the coin. I think we both see where the right. other side is coming from. Um, okay, but the ones who have problems, they can eat from the korban. They can yeah, exactly. They're, they're not. It's not like they're abandoned and then they're yeah. not allowed to partake still, in, in being a Kohen anymore. It's just that in the service of the Mikdash. And by the way, if their blemish heals, it can go back to service. So this is the only person that's really, really being affected is a person who has a permanent blemish, right? But if a person like breaks his leg, the second of the, the leg is <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's move on. Okay. If the blemish heals, it's not up to him. It's you know, it's, again. Yeah, but, but I guess we can. Uh, I mean, you know. We could we could go on for a very no no no. I I love the discussion. I think it was very interesting. Okay, so that's how we began the parshat and more, where we discussed the behaviors that the kohanim can do to maintain their kedusha. Finally, and so far, therefore, Vaikra, the book of Vaikra, has been a book solely about kedusha. The first half of the book was a book about. The Mikdash, the physical Kedusha of the, phys- of the place. The second half of the book, or what we've seen of the second half of the book so far, has been Kedusha of the individual through behaviors. And now we are about to be introduced to the third kind of Kedusha, which is time-bound Kedusha. Which is Kedusha that applies to moments in time. We have Kedusha in space, we have Kedusha in behavior, and we have Kedusha in time. And that... And this piece, this Kedushah on time, is actually going to be pretty much the conclusion to the book of Vaikra. Once we finish this portion of, 
of the book of Aikra, there's actually an interesting, I brought an interesting sheet, um, which we'll, we'll be analyzing a little bit, but the book starts to wind down. And the whole book of Aikra starts to wind down and it comes towards its conclusion. For example, an example of the book winding down is then Parshat Bechukotai. What do you have? We have another covenant. It's almost like the bookend to the first covenant, which was the covenant of Har Sinai. You know? so, so we see the book is going to start winding down once we accomplish all of the realms of Kiddushah. So now we open up in the 23rd chapter of Parsha Vaikra, of, Sef, of the book of Vaikra, in the first pasuk. Speak to the children of Israel, uh, times, let's say, the meeting times of God that you shall call gatherings of sanctity, these are my mu'adot, mu'adim. Uh, Pasuk 3. I'm, gonna, I'm not only going to translate the word mu'ed, mu'ed means something like meeting, so if you're talking about uh, mu'ed as in a time, you're right, you have ohel mu'ed, which is a tenth of meeting, and then you have a mu'ed, which is a time, which could be a time in which we meet with God, right? So that's how, I'm not even going to translate that word, just understand that it means something like meaning, meeting, right? Sheshet yamim For six days, work shall be done. And on the seventh day, Shabbat Shabbaton Mikra Kodesh, it should be a Shabbat Shabbaton, like a, a resting day, a day of, of gathering for holiness. Kol melacha lo ta'asu, no labor shall be done. Shabbat Hiladonai, it is a day of rest to God, the Chol Moshevotachem, in all of your places of living. What is strange about this Pasuk? It's the first festival is Shabbat, at least the most. Well, well he, you hit on the question. We are about to talk about the festivals. But then it introduces us to Shabbat. Now we've seen the Shabbat before. Um, and the Shabbat. It, we don't, it doesn't seem like, I mean, I mean, is Shabbat even a moed? If you look at the next pasuk, is Shabbat even a festival? Because if you look at the next pasuk, what does it say? Pasuk 4. Mm-hmm. These are the festivals. Mm-hmm. Meaning it says, we're about to introduce the festivals. By the way, you have the Shabbat. Here are the festivals. Meaning the Shabbat isn't really a festival on par with the other festivals. Meaning it's, it's a different, qualitatively different festival. So, so what is it doing here? So... Yeah, go ahead. No, it's prioritizing Shabbat. It's being the first one being listed. It's, again, it's been done before, but in the context of now of all the festivals, right. first is Shabbat. So, so he's the, telling us that let's, let's, Shabbat is so, so, well, you see, he said something, something that's very important because it, it gives organization to the way you look right. at the text. Shabbat was already introduced. So the reason it is introduced here, again, sure. is because we are in the context of festivals and it wants to show us the relationship between the Shabbat and the festivals. Okay? Meaning... If you're going to ask the question, why is Shabbat discussed twice? So the real answer, a real student of the Tanakh will say, the first time was in the context of the Aserat Dibrot, and it was reintroduced in the context of all of the holidays to introduce us to the relationship between the Shabbat and the holidays. And what would that relationship be? What is the relationship between the Shabbat and the holidays? Well, first of all, Shabbat is almost like the quintessential holiday. Similar observances also. They're very similar observances. Yes. Obviously, you, you avoid. You don't work. Uh, one thing you should notice is that here it says, six days uh, you should do milacha, and on the seventh day you shall not do any milacha. But by, this, by the holidays, it actually says you shall not do anything called milachet avodah. So the, it actually describes the labor in different words 
which is where the Chachamim got the idea that the observance levels for Shabbat and the, and the holidays is actually different. There are things you're allowed to do on the holidays that you're not allowed to do on Shabbat, Shabbat, like cooking, for example. So that comes from the difference in the words. On Shabbat it says, you cannot do any labor, milacha, and then on the holidays it says, melechet avodah. Well, if it's using different terms, they must mean different things. So that's where the Chachamim got that from. But... Um, what was I saying? So we were introducing how the, the relationship between the Shabbat and the Moadim. The first thing is that they have similar observances. The second thing is that Shabbat seems to be like the quintessential Chag, the quintessential day of, uh, of, of, um, of a festival. What you'll see with the coming festivals is that there's one number that's going to come over and over and over again, and that is the number seven. seven. And if these numbers, all of the things, all the holidays, either a multiple of seven or after seven days, seven. or require seven, seven days, seven weeks of counting and things like that, they're all trying to bring our minds back to the Shabbat, which is the festival of the seven. And, and what is happening? So I read Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. He said, fascinatingly, and I think he's right with his uh, analysis. I think he's, he's hitting on the, the most basic point. What is the difference between the origin of Shabbat and the origin of the festivals? The Shabbat, its origin is very broad. The origin of the Shabbat is in the creation of the world. So it's almost like the Shabbat was instituted by Boreolam by himself. But then what are all these festivals that we're about to read? We're about to read all the festivals, starting with Pesach, Shavuot, What happened in the history of the Jewish people? The rest of the festivals were born out of the, of the history of the Jewish people. So you can almost look at it like, like this. The Shabbat started the earliest. The Shabbat is the most fundamental holiday. It's built into the fabric of the universe. And that represents our relationship to God as creator of the world. But then, there are more festivals that build on that. Because that's a very low level, right? If you just accept God as a creator of the world, you can say he created the world and left. He created the world and then just he's, now he's sleeping. You know? But that's not what the Jewish people believe. Once God created the world, there was also God's involvement in the life of the Jewish people that manifested itself and that is celebrated through the... Holidays. So the ordering of putting Shabbat before the holidays is to, is to teach us that philosophical point that you start with the Shabbat, which is our relationship to God as creator of the world, but then the holidays take us to the next level, which is God's relationship to us as a people and God's management of the world, God's involvement, his active involvement in the world and in history. That's what all the holidays teach us. So those are the holidays that take us a step further in our relationship with God. They all build off of, of Shabbat. That's why they all are multiples of seven. But they, they introduce us to a separate facet. And now there are a lot of interesting ideas that come up, that, that come through this. For example, the Shabbat is, is a day which is designated. There's no way for, let's say, a Sanhedrin to change the day of Shabbat. Right. So six days and the seventh day right. is Shabbat. But for the, let's say, for the holidays, if... if there, you could, you the, could move, you could move a holiday one day or you could, the, the Sanhedrin could actively move a holiday depending on when they designate the, the Rosh Chodesh to have occurred. If the, the new month occurred one day later or earlier, that affects the holidays. That in a sense shows that the holidays, more than the Shabbat, are more in the realm of the Jewish people rather than in the abstract Boreolam, in the abstract creation of the world. These are all, it's very philosophical, but I think that's the main point. That's why you introduce the Shabbat and then the holidays come after. Yeah. With Sanhedrin, I'm just curious. I'm not sure. They move the holidays based on Rosh Chodesh or strictly based on Shabbat? Before or after Shabbat? Is it around no, no, Shabbat? Or it, it, it could be... It had nothing to do with Shabbat. It had nothing to do with Shabbat. It was all dependent back in the day when they would designate Rosh Chodesh. 
it was all dependent on when they realized and they saw uh, the sliver of the new moon. Or, or when they saw that there's no moon. I don't even remember. But, but it, what? The appearance of the sliver of the new moon, right? But by that, they can, that's why we keep two days. That's how they're designated. But and then there was a, there was a further. By the way, and there was one more point that the, there's besides for just control over the month, the day the day of the first the first day of the month, they also had control over the leap years. So in it, so if the the, the lunar calendar is, is about t- eleven days shorter than the solar calendar, so if you let the solar calendar run its path and you let the lunar calendar go its way, after about every three years, you will be short like thirty days. So after about every, about every three years, you also have to add another entire month. That's why we have Adar Aleph and Adar Bet. to be announced. Shabbat didn't have to be announced. Yeah, that's the point. The Rosh Chodesh is announced by the people. And the Rosh Chodesh is what designates the holiday. So it's almost like the holiday is called by the people. It is, it is announced by the people, while the Shabbat is just runs its own course. And that fits into the nature of the, of the different things. The holiday is something that has to do with the people's history. And it's something that's almost given to the hands of the people. The Shabbat is more in the abstract. But the, in, when we are trying to connect with God, you start with the fundamentals. You start with the Shabbat. God is the creator of the world. That's the first. If you want to be a man of faith, you have to first be convinced that God is creator of the world. And then you could get to the nuances like, well, what is his involvement in the world? For example, Aristotelian philosophy back in 2000 B.C., uh, no, not, not that long ago. In, uh, what was it, 0 BC? Or, wait, he was, he was uh, Greek. So 300 BC, let's say. Um, they, he believed in the creator, but did not believe in an active manager of the world. You know? So the first thing you, can, you, can, you have to accept is creator. That's the Shabbat. Okay, Pasuk 4. Now we, we're going to move a little bit quickly. That's our general introduction to the, the holidays. These are the holidays of God. Days calling to holiness. What is Mikra Kodesh, by the way? <clears throat> what does that word mean? Mm. When you call out a day of, to be a, a day of a holiness, point. when you're calling out something to the public, why are you calling to the public? To call them to gather in. So the word Mikra typically meant a time of gathering, a gathering of, of time when people would, would come for, to the, uh, uh, for the sake of something holy. In the first month, on the 14th day of that month, you have the Pesach, meaning you slaughter the Korban Pesach. Now, that night, on the 15th, you have the Chag HaMatzot, you have the holiday of the Chag HaMatzot, which takes that slaughtering that happened earlier in the day, on the 14th, and eats it along with the matzah, right? And you have to have, for seven days, you, be, you have to eat matzah, starting from the 15th for seven days. On the first day, it is a calling of holiness for you. You shall not do any melechet avodah. Again, this word is distinct from the word by Shabbat, which is kol melecha, which is where we learn the idea that you could cook on, on the thing, on the holidays. You will bring offerings to God for seven days. And then on the seventh day, again, you will have a, a calling of holiness. And on that day as well, you will not do any work. That was the holiday of Pesach. You see the dual element of the Korban Pesach and the offerings that are brought. So you should do deliveries work all week. Um, well, yeah, the way it's broken, the way it's the, so halakhically, halakhically, there is a point to what Yoram is saying. Halakhically, the way it's broken down is as follows: on the Shabbat, you can't do any work, <clears throat> including cooking. 
on the holidays, on the Yom Tov of the holiday, meaning on the first and the seventh day of Sukkot, first and the eighth day, uh, sorry, first and seventh day of Pesach, first and the eighth day of Sukkot, to the, the day of Shavuot, the day of Rosh Hashanah, all of these days you are allowed to cook or do anything that is a very fundamental need of the person, like uh, basic forms of washing, right, and cooking and eating for the sake of eating. And then on the Chola Moed, which is from holiday A to holiday B, meaning in Sukkot and on, 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 Sukkot, and on, on Pesach, you're allowed to do all work, except you're, you're not allowed to do work unless it is something that you're going you to lose. Started no, 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 unless it is something that you're going to lose. So, for example, they say not to do work, not to go to work, unless by not going to work, you will suffer significant loss. So even on the Chola Moed, there are laws of, of limiting work behavior, but to, only to the extent that it doesn't incur, it doesn't cause a person to incur major losses. You know, if a person doesn't have to work, you shouldn't work. But if they, they're going to lose a lot of money, then they, they, they work. And that's the basic, basic law. That's not Minah Torah, that's the uh, rabbinic institutions, they have completely different laws, uh, so yeah. Uh, like, why is the, the, it's like, very it, because Hashem no, no, it's not, it's not random at all. is the first month of the year. It's not, it's not random at all. Uh, I mean, why is it the first month of the year? So it's there are a lot, there are a lot of reasons. First of all, this is all following the agricultural cycle. The mm-hmm. fir, we're going to see right now. You, the holidays are also tied to agricultural celebrations. So Pesach becomes a celebration of the barley. Why is it the celebration of the barley? Because barley sprouts first. It sprouts before wheat. So when the harvest season begins, har- barley is the first thing you're going to have. Now Shavuot becomes a celebration of wheat, because wheat is second. Sukkot is a celebration of what? Fruit. Sukkot is a celebration of fruit. And fruit is the latest to, to, to be harvested. So the, the order is going to follow the agricultural cycle. And it also, if you want to think about it philosophically, um, spring is a time of rebirth. There, there, it's not by coincidence that the Jewish people were born in the time of spring. Because spring is a time when the death of the winter is over. The spring, things start to sprout again. And, the Jew, and that's when birth, that's, that's the time of birth. The trees start again, start... Uh, right. So, so the Jewish people were born during that time. And, and for that reason, the history follows the order. And by the way, even when they're tied to the historical events... We say Shavuot, it's not explicit in the Torah, but Shavuot is a time of the giving of the Torah. That happened when? After we left Egypt. So you leave and Egypt, you get the Torah, and then, and then we got the Torah immediately when we, went, when we left Egypt. The 40 years on the, in the desert, which we're celebrating on, on Sukkot, will be like the last historical thing. So whether you're following the agricultural cycle or the historical cycle, the order is Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot. That, that's, that's how it is. But I just want to just say something might be interesting. You know, these Shalosh Regalim, the three Chayk uh, that we have, okay, starts out by what, uh, what, uh, by what Hashem did for us during the 40 years in the desert. Started out by, by bringing us out of Egypt. Okay, that's Pesach. And then what happened after that? He gave us the Torah, that's Shavuot. And the third one is protection of uh, us during the 40 years in the desert. And that is Sukkot. 
just what Hashem did for us during the 40 years in mm-hmm. the desert. Yeah. Our yeah. thanks. Our yeah. thanks. Okay, now I didn't realize how, how much time... Uh, <laughs> You're in a rush. How, how does this happen? Why does this happen? Every, I thought... It's like a common I, I honestly, <laughs> I honestly <laughs> thought this week we're going to like finish at 10, 10, 15. I wouldn't have anything to say. You were getting Monday. This week is one parasha. It's so easy. Time. I said, we, we see. didn't even start. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, I don't, I don't want to realize that I, that I do that. But okay. Pasuk 9. Pasuk 9. You will bring the Omer, which is a barley offering, that is the first of your harvest to God. You will wave the Omer offering before God. What, what? You said to God, but oh, sorry. So you bring it to the Kohen, but it's, it's essentially like an offering. Uh, so you, the, the, the Kohen will then wave the, the barley offering before God uh, according to your will, whatever that means. After the Shabbat, the Kohen shall wave it. What does it mean after the Shabbat? The Shabbat is interpreted this is something as I can't, I can't avoid. Pesach, but after the, the first day of Pesach. But after the second I, I, I always have problems with no, the first is but the first day. The first day of Pesach is a Yom Tov. You cannot do it. They have to do the second day. Celebration was at the wrong time. I think what the Torah is referring to is the last day of Pesach, which is the Shabbat, because it's a seventh day and also a day of rest. You know. So, uh, so that's not. There's there was actually there was actually not even. So you're touching on a debate, which. And you didn't even fall into any of the categories that, that were debated. There were two actual, two opinions. The traditional rabbinic understanding was this is, the Shabbat is the first day yes, of Pesach. Yes, yes. Which, by the way, also makes sense because, and, and one of the reasons you know the rabbis were right, is because if you look in the book of Yoshua, and this could answer your question, you know what's the best way to know what the Torah meant about something? To see how the Jewish people kept it After. Right, right at that time. Yes. Look in the book of Yoshua in the fifth chapter, and I think you'll be very surprised what you see. You'll see this, 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 this thing is kept. Fifth chapter of the book of Yoshua. Um, the discussion was between the rabbis and the, the, the Baitosim. Okay? The Baitosim were a sect of Jewish people in the second temple era who did not agree with the interpretations the rabbis gave to the Torah, or did not give to the, agree with the tradition that the rabbis had as to how to interpret the Torah. See, the traditional understanding of the Torah stems from the Torah Shebel Peh that Moshe was given at Har Sinai. From the oral law that Moshe was given at, at, at Har Sinai. And the rabbis, all of their interpretations are either direct, uh, directly descendant from that oral tradition or some outgrowth of that oral tradition. So it's not as, much, it's not as important as... as um, whenever we read the text, whenever the rabbis read the text, they're not, they're not inventing their own ideas. They're building off the tradition of what the text, how the text is properly understood by the Jewish people. That institution, the, rab- the rabbinic tradition, there were detractors from that rabbinic tradition called Sadokim, Baitosim. These are people that are famous in history. There are also other sects of Judaism. I think you're like the Essenes, the Qumran sect. There are all these different sects. Many of them sprang up during the Second Temple era. As a side note, maybe this is uh, Jesus' cult was also another one of these sects, by the way. Most it's just, it's Most the one probably. that caught on. Most probably. But there were many of them, which tells you something about Christianity. If it's one of many sects, it's almost like 
you know, uh, it, there was historical precedent for what Jesus was trying to do. He wasn't the first person to do it. Um, anyways, and then they had this d- debate between the rabbis and the Baitosim. Basically, the Baitosim said that this was referring to the Shabbat, that the Omer is brought the day after Shabbat, meaning on Sunday. What Sunday? Probably the first Sunday after Pesach or something. The rabbi said, no, 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 the Shabbat is in reference to the Pesach, which has very similar laws to the Shabbat. And it's a day on which we are Shovet, on the day which we stop work. And that's the rabbinic understanding. It was a huge debate. I'm not going to go into the debate, but um, there are many, many proofs that, meaning the rabbis don't need to prove it because they're, they're basing their things off tradition. Whatever the rabbis say is coming from tradition, which came all the way from Moshe Rabbeinu, as to how to interpret the Torah. So you don't need to defend them. You just need to prove that your tradition is valid. If you do want to defend them, there are many proofs. We can go into it another time. We don't have time for it. But this pasuk is referring to the Pesach. And the day after the Pesach is that the Omer is brought is, is uh, also going to be the start of Sefirat Omer, yes. which is what we're going to talk about yes. now. Okay? You shall not eat any bread or any different types of grain until you bring this harvest. Meaning, anything that you want to eat from the harvest season, you have to first bring your offering of the Omer, and then you're allowed to eat of the grains of that harvest. So that's what contradicts it, because if you bring it, Let's say the second day of, uh, of Pesach, Pesach yeah. you're not supposed to eat bread anyway. So you're supposed to be eating matzah. So how does it, the it's a, it has nothing, not supposed to eat bread? Uh, matzah is bread. So matzah is bread. No, that's not at all. Matzah and all the grains are permitted on Pesach, just not in the form of leaven. So the bread could also mean matzah, you're saying? Of course. That in, in, the, in the Mikdash, it says, what is the, the bread of the table called? The, the bread that you put on the table, it's called? Lechem uh, hapanim. Yes. Elsewhere, right, elsewhere in the Torah, do you know what the law is? That you're not allowed to bring any leavened bread into the Mikdash. So if I'm not allowed to bring leavened bread into the Mikdash, how can you call the lechem hapanim uh, bread? Because it's called bread. It's called bread in the Torah. Yeah, but then, then what about the first day of Pesach? You're supposed to be eating matzah yeah. on the first day. You have it from the previous year's grain. Eat, uh, till the second day. That means the you, first day you cannot eat it. Right, you have it from the previous year's grain. Yeah. yeah. The same way we do today. Yeah, you preserve from the previous year's grain. There's because, a certain period in the year because you're not allowed the, the bread, so, so what they would do is they would preserve the harvest season was, let's say, from around Pesach to Sukkot, right? Now that harvest needs to be preserved all the way until, not only till Pesach, it has to be preserved till way after Pesach, because you're not even, you only bring the, you only harvest the beginning, beginning of yes, the grain not even ready. on Pesach. But the rest of the grain is going to be harvested sometime in Shavuot. So what are you eating from Pesach until Shavuot? Everything, you're, you're preserving the previous harvest all the way until mid or end of the harvest season of the next year. All right. Uh, by the way, this is also the concept of Chadash. If you want to know what the concept of Chadash is, it's built on this, but we're not going to get into it. Uh, I'm going to skim. The next part talks about the Sefirat Omer, and now you have to count seven weeks until the Shavuot. Uh, seven, seven, on, on the Shavuot, we bring a wheat offering, a very famous wheat offering, and that would be like the counterpart to which offering? The barley offering. So the barley offering starts the season of the harvest, and the wheat offering 
ends the season of the harvest, or it's the last of the, the wheat harvest season. Okay? So that's why Pesach and Shavuot are connected, because Pesach, you have the barley harvest, you count to the next one, which is the wheat harvest, which is brought on Shavuot. I have one question. Why is Shavuot only one day? In comparison to Pesach and... So, so the, I think what, what's going on there is, do you know how on... Do you know what the Chachamim called the holiday of Shavuot? What, what was the name of Shavuot? What's it, what is it called? What's the most... The, Atzeret, exactly. It's called Atzeret. It's a day of stoppage, right? What other holiday has a day called Atzeret? Shmini Atzeret. You have, you have Shmini Atzeret, which is how many days? One day. One day. What is Shemini Atzeret a stoppage after? It is the stoppage after the holiday of? Sukkot. Sukkot. So you have seven days of Sukkot, and then you have an eighth day, which is a stoppage day, and it's one day. So this is this day. That parallels the Pesach to Shavuot dualism. The Pesach and Shavuot concept is, Pesach is a much more extended holiday, it's a 49-day holiday, and it ends with a one-day holiday, very similarly to how Sukkot ended with a one-day holiday. Now, what's the reason for the Atzeret? That's the real question. I don't know. But why Sukkot, why Shavuot is one day? Probably the same reason the Atzeret is one day. Why both of those days are even necessary? Let's not get into it. Doesn't Atzeret mean gathering? Atzeret is whenever you use, in a way, you could... Like, stop things. If you, let's say, you stop your otzer, a river, then what happens? The river gathers. So oh, you can, nice. something like that. Okay. Um, 22. Wow, this was very Whenever you, you uh, we're in the Pasuk 22, okay? This is after the wheat harvest, the wheat offering is brought on Shavuot. Whenever you are doing your harvest, do not finish the edge of your field in your harvest. Do not harvest to the very end. And do not gather the things that fall. Leave for the, the poor and, the and for the, for the uh, proselyte. I am Hashem your God. What is this law doing here? Put your ego in check. What? Put your ego in check. Yeah, but what is it doing within the context that we're the... discussing? For sure, it's, a, it's an ego check, but we've seen these laws oh, before, first of all. Yes. If, if you're gonna, we, see, we saw these laws in Parshat Kedoshim. Why are you bringing them up again? Why are you bringing them But the, the message, uh, that's what I see. I see but like, uh, you want to give to the poor, you're actually doing the action of giving to the poor. You're making yourself feel good. Almost gives yourself a God. So, right. I am God. Well, oh, I don't know. That, that's a separate thing. Why right. is the Ani Adonai Lohechem introduced here? No, no. My, my question is, what is this law doing in the context of the holidays well, all of a sudden? So. There's a simple answer. A very simple answer. What, what are the holidays celebration of partly? The harvest season. So you have to leave some. We bring the first harvest in Pesach, the barley harvest, which is the earliest one to grow. You bring the last one in Shavuot, which is the wheat harvest. And that's the conclusion of the harvest season. So what mitzvah becomes most relevant in the conclusion of the harvest season? Tzedakah. The giving tzedakah of the harvest. Yes. The, the laws of tzedakah were an outgrowth of the harvesting process. You, when you're harvesting, leave the edge of your field. When you're harvesting, whatever drops, leave it for the people. So when are you going to tell the people that? When you're telling them about the harvest process. Okay? Next. Uh, by the way, now we go to the next holiday, um, which is Rosh Hashanah. Uh, I'm not going to, to go into the Pesukim of Rosh Hashanah. The holiday after that is 
uh, is Yom Kippur. Yes. Yom Kippur, we see, if you look at Pasuk 28, the verse says, V'chol melecha lo ta'asu. It doesn't say melechet avodah. Yes, it says kol like, like So it's like Shabbat. Shabbat. So that's how you know that it's it's exactly identical to Shabbat. This is Kippur. Yes. And in pasuk twenty nine, it says, uh, um, sorry, it says in pasuk twenty seven, it says You should afflict yourselves. From here, we see that there's more than just not keep not doing melacha, but there's also an act of affliction, which is uh, fasting. fasting yes. Okay, so that's where the fasting comes from, um, and that fasting. is that is Yom Kippur. That is a day of atonement. The final holiday which we celebrate, I'm not Sukkot. going to go into the sukim either, is the holiday of Sukkot. Holiday of Sukkot is a seven day holiday on which the first day is a day of avoiding melachet avodah again, and then the Eighth day is a separate holiday called Atzeret. Let's see how they translated Atzeret here. Seven days you should bring holy amen, It should be a holy convocation. Here they did it as a gathering. It comes. It comes from the stoppage idea. Whenever you you stop, you you gather things through stoppage. Okay. Elim um, and then pasuk thirty seven concludes the list of the Mu'adot or the Mu'adim. Ele Mu'adi Adonai Sheh Tikrotam Mikrai Kodesh La Krivi Sheh Adonai to bring offerings on those days. Ola Mincha Zevach Unsachim Debar Yom Biyomo Ola Mincha all of the different types of offerings everything on its day. Right? And this is besides for uh, this is besides for the these holidays go are going to be kept besides for the once a week holiday which you already keep which is Shabbat Milavat Shabbatot Adonai Umilavat Matanotechem and besides for all of the offerings you bring willingly you also bring the offerings on these holidays. Um, the after it concludes, there's a very strange part of the parasha which we're not going to analyze much, but it then talks about the specific fruits that you have to bring, the etrog, the love, that you bring as part of the celebration of Sukkot. And that it does for some reason after the conclusion of, of the holidays. So I'm not going to get into it, but from Pasuk 39 uh, to uh, 44, it talks about like yeah. you bring the, yes. the etrog, you bring the yes. love, you bring the, and you bring them before God, and you celebrate with those things. High level, it's a celebration of the final part of the harvest season, which is when you start bringing in the fruits. When you bring the produce of the land, as opposed to the harvest, which is of grain. Okay, and that's what Sukkot. If you're following the agricultural celebration, Sukkot would be that final time of the season. Now we go uh, chapter in chapter 24. There are going to be two things that are brought, that are told to us. We're going to have the law of the menorah and how the menorah should be lit every night and every morning and should be kept, ever lit, should be kept lit all at all times. And then it brings us, we, we also see the law of the, of the showbread, which is called lechem, even though it, is, it was the, the showbread. That's the bread that went... That went on the Shulchan. Yes, if you remember that the construction of the Mishkan, you had the menorah, yeah, yeah, and across yeah. from it, on the southern side, you had the you had the, the table. The table held bread, and the process was they would on Friday they would bake bread, and for the following Friday on they Shabbat would they would bring it into the into the table. They would slip it on, they would slip it onto the table, and they would take the previous uh, uh, week's bread off, and they would give the previous week's bread to the Kohanim for food. Okay. This is 12 breaths, right? Yes. It was 12. Yeah. Six from and the, six. Six and six. Okay. Now we get Pasuk Yud is where it gets very strange. Because we have the second and the only other narrative section in the book of Aikra is the, the few Psukim we're about to read from Pasuk, from Pasuk 10. And that is the story of the one who blasphemed oh. against God. 
we went all the way to the end. In terms now of I in terms of our in terms of our discussions of the book of Aikra, we are pretty much again at the end of the book of Aikra. We've discussed all the different types of holiness. We've shown a person how he can live a life imbued with holiness in his actions. We've gone through the rules of the Mikdash. And we've gone through the rules of the holidays in which there are specific times. So we are near the end. By the way, if you ask the question of why are we taught about the Minorah and the Shulchan now? Do you know what the answer is? A very simple answer. Because we were taught before about the Mishkan, but we weren't, when we were talking about the Mishkan, as I said before, we weren't focusing on the people's service yes, in the Mishkan. We're talking about the rules, the general rules. Here is a, is a directive to the Kohanim as to how to perform, to perform the service of the Menorah and the Shulchan. So it's an active performance on part of the people and part of the behavioral part of the Kiddushah. Okay. Look at Pasuk Yud, the 10th te- Pasuk. There was a son of a Jewish woman, ben Ish Mitzri, and he was the son of a, an Egyptian man. He went out of or out from the midst of Israel. And then there was a fight, or they fought in the camp. Ben Israelit, the son of this woman, who was the son of also an Egyptian man, the Ish Israeli and a Jewish man. Vaikov ben the man pronounced the name the, the man, the son of the woman, who was the son of the Egyptian, cursed the name of God. He pronounced the name of God and he cursed it. And then they brought him to Moshe. And what was the name of his mother? Shelomit bat divri lematedan. She was a woman by the name of Shelomit bat divri lematedan from the tribe of Dan. Why we have to know her name? I'm not exactly sure. They put him in a uh, uh, quarantine, let's call it, or put him in like under guard. guard. To so that it might be declared by God what to do with him. Like a holding cell. A holding cell. Pasuk 13. By the Adonai Moshe so God spoke to Moshe and he said, Bring the person who cursed outside the camp. All the people who heard his curse should put their hands on his head. And they should stone him, all of the people. And to the children of Israel, you should say the following. Any man who curses his God, he will bear his sin. The person who pronounces the name of God in cursing, shall die. The whole people should stone him. Whether he is a proselyte or a citizen or a native, when he pronounces the name of God in curse, he will die. Besides for this, anybody who kills another man, so shall he die. And if you strike your friend's animal, you have to pay for it. Person who gives a blemish to his friend, as he did, so shall be done to him, meaning in monetary, in, in a monetary sense, he has to pay for the damage he gave to his friend. If he broke the person's limb, he has to pay for the breaking of, breaking of the limb or the value of the breaking of the limb. An eye for an eye, shen tachachen, tooth for a tooth, yada yada. Kashe tenmum ba'adam, keni natan bo'azi person gives a blemish to the person, so shall be given to him. 
And again, the person who strikes an animal should pay, and the person who strikes a human shall die. And it should be one law for you and for the person who is a proselyte. Uh, the, the proselyte shall be like the citizen in this regard. For I am Hashem, your God. I am the God of everyone. So I don't distinguish between the proselyte and the regular person. So Moshe spoke to the children of Israel after getting the directive to stone the man and a bunch of other laws. Moshe then turns to the people and he tells them, let's do it. Let's do what God told us to do. So they brought out the person who cursed outside the camp. And they struck him with, they pelted him with stones. And the children of Israel did as God commanded Moshe. What in the world is going on with this story? Why is it brought here? And what is, uh, how, how are we And why it's so many different things? Very so let's first open up the discussion to, to see if we can develop some ideas and then, and then we'll uh, say what, what perhaps may be a deeper insight. Any, any questions? Why now? Why now? Okay, first, the first question is what is this doing here of all places? Good question. Right, right, after, the yeah. right after the Chagim, right at the conclusion of the book of Aikra. I have an idea, but I don't know if it may not be correct. That's okay. I mean, well, I mean, just before this, you know, when it was talking about Omer, it said, bring the first fruit of your land. When you enter the land, bring your first fruit to, 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 um, to um, Mikdash. Yeah. Right? Now, why, what is the significance of that? I mean, then I will relate that to what you just read now. Is because, to me, is because Hashem is saying that if I'm giving you, you have to know that before you use it, you have to give to others, okay? In other words, you have to be godly just the way I am. Correct. Now here, okay, is basically giving the same message, I think. You know, that if you... If somebody, you know, curses me, okay, of course that person has to be killed, eliminated, okay? The same way if you are fighting some other person or you're hurting some other person, you steal something from another person, okay? The same, it's the same way you treat God, you treat other people. In other words, all people are godly. Okay, so the same way you go against me, that's, you cannot go that's against me. Very, very, very I'm going I'm to elaborate on that theme. That's, that's, a th- that's a theme I want to elaborate on. Um, any other questions about the segment before we, we proceed? No. So let's start, let's start with what's going on in the segment. Why is it brought here? So we started off by introducing the whole book of Vaikra. And we said the whole book of Vaikra is a book of Kiddushah. In all elements. And we're at the conclusion of all those laws. We're really, really almost at the end. The coming parashiot, if you look at the next parasha, we go back to Har Sinai. So we're, we're kind of leaving the whole topic of Kedushah, which was all a tangent to the Mikdash. And now we're going back to probably the next laws that were taught at Har Sinai, maybe after the laws of Mishpatim. You get what I'm saying? Do you, do you, you have to see how brilliantly the Torah lays everything out to see how big of a tangent we've been on. We've been on a tangent right now from the end of Mishpatim, when we, start, when we built the Mishkan, until now has been one long tangent about the laws of Kiddushah, how they pertain to the Mishkan and how they pertain to our personal life. So we just concluded that tangent. Next parasha, we go back if you look, we go back, it says, God spoke to Moshe, 
God spoke to Moshe in the mountain of Sinai saying, so where are we going back to in the next week's parasha? Back to Mount Sinai. Back to the laws of Mishpatim. Back to the laws of Mishpatim. So now our text that we have here needs to do two things. The, the text of this blasphemer guy. The first thing, it has to bring us back to the topic of Mishpatim. Those laws that we heard at Mount Sinai. We have to get back to those laws. And we have to somehow see how all of the things that we've learned in the book of Aikra tie into those laws of Mishpatim as well. Tie into those societal laws, we'll call them, that were taught in Mishpatim when we were at the mountain. Because that's where we're going back to. So what is this segment doing here? It's trying to show us, it seems like, it's trying to show us, let's say you take Kedushah and you flip it on its head. Not only does a person not want to live with God, not only does he not live with God in his behavior, not only does he not have respect for the Mikdash, which is a whole topic of the Baikra, the person goes in the opposite direction and curses God. He makes an active, aggressive attempt to eradicate God. What happens then? That would be like almost the opposite of everything we've been dis- discussing in Vaikra. It's almost like the negative of the whole purpose of Vaikra. Let's test the test case of what happens to the person who goes in the opposite direction. So the first thing is the reason it's a, it's a conclusion of the book of Vaikra is because it represents what happens to the person who completely deviates from everything we've done. And that person has to be put to death. Now, specifically why this person was put to death and the way he was put to death was also to send the message to B'nai Israel. If you notice, all of the Jewish people have to do this in a communal way. The people who see the action put their hands on him and they have to, they have to be the ones to stone him. And that's, that's part of training B'nai Israel to say that this is off limits. Nobody curses God. Um, but it's also showing us, it's also introducing us to the idea of deviating from Kiddushah and what happens. And... What occurs when a person deviates from Kiddushah? What happens when the society lets go of their focus on Kiddushah? Well, we know what happens when a person, when the society behaves with Kiddushah. You have a good society in which people give tzedakah, in which all of our sexual behaviors are tamed, and all of our, go through all of Parshat Kiddushim. You'll see what happens in the positive sense. But in the negative sense, you will have two people fighting, it may turn bloody. So if it turns bloody, what are the laws in that case? Well, we're back to the laws of what happens when a person kills another. What I think the text is doing here is that it's trying to bring, it's trying to show us the relationship between living with God and, and, and societal and the health of the society. Because if, you, if we're trying to get back to the laws that we were taught on Mishpatim, the laws that we were taught, the civil laws that we were taught at Har Sinai of how to build a good society... One of the, the, the final link to the puzzle of understanding all of that is that the society can only maintain its health if and only if it is a society that believes in God. But if the society blasphemes against God and deviates from God, then they won't keep those laws. Then not only will the people not live with personal Kedushah, then the society and the health of the society, the order in the society will also begin to deteriorate. So if you look at the order, we did Kedushah, then we have the case of the person who deviates from Kiddushah and now we go through a bunch of civil laws again. Saying that, and by the way, in, in getting rid of the person who blasphemed against God, we have to reinstitute the fundamental rules of civil society, which are an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And when you, kill, when you damage someone, you pay for it. And when you kill someone, you, you pay with your life. So 
now, now all of a sudden that that brings. What is that? Yeah. 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 So I'm going to summarize one more time what what we've seen. We got the Torah at Har Sinai in Parshat Yitro. In Parshat Mishpatim, we went through the civil laws that govern a good society that are an outgrowth of the Torah. And then, once the Jewish people sinned with the golden calf, we introduced them to the idea of living with God, with one God, instead of a golden calf, and all the laws of Kiddushah that come with it. And through the story of the blasphemer, we're showing now the connection between Kiddushah and a healthy society. We are now uniting the laws of Mishpatim with the concepts in the book of Vaikra, and they're, all, they're becoming one. And we're showing that a society that is not governed by Kiddushah is not only a society in which you will have a lack of positive behavior, it is a society that will devolve into many negative behaviors. So when a person decides to go in the opposite direction and curse God, you eradicate him, and let's go back and reiterate those laws which you may have forgotten in the course of blaspheming against God. And that brings us, and now this is what I wanted to introduce with this, this sheet of paper. It's a very, very complex, uh, very complex idea, but what... The, the rabbi here is a rabbi named Rabbi Yoel bin Nun was trying to prove is that starting from Har Sinai until the next parasha which is uh, Parashat Bihar and the Fukotai you're actually going full circle which is what I've been trying to show right now in a miniature but he shows how if you take let's say the, the Parashat Yitro and you try to connect it you will see that it has many parallels with the Parashat Bihukotai now, if you take what happened right before Parashat Bechukotai, it has parallels with what happened right after Parashat Yitro, and so on and so forth. And the Torah is kind of, kind of showing you this arc, you know, and, and what we come away with at the end of the day is that for the health of society, it's not just about having a civil code. It's having a civil code, but it's also living with God. Because if, we, if the society does not live with God and does not, yeah, then yeah. the civil code will deteriorate on its own. And it's something, and these are, this is one of those respect. things that when you look at the Torah and the brilliance of the Torah, you see, especially today, we're getting a glimpse of how true it really is. I mean, look at the society, look at American society. We can all agree, let's say, that American society, the, we can probably say that the, the health of our law code and the, and the civilness of our, of our culture are deteriorating, where crime is up and things are not looking as good. Isn't it ironic that it's at a time when materialism is everybody's God and people are leaving the church and the synagogue and nobody's religious anymore? Isn't that, isn't that interesting? It almost shows the evolution process of the people. You know, the last infraction here of uh, blaspheming the name of God is basically people against the ship. Yeah. You know? All the other ones are people against people. The last time I remember that the people went against Hashem was the golden calf. Yes. And Hashem's natural instinct was to kill them all. Then people said, Moses says, stop. But now Hashem says, now you deal with it. I'm not going to deal with it. So you go and, and kill them. That's an interesting point. To connect us to the golden calf. And how, right, that was a communal sin, which is why God wanted to destroy everyone. This is an individual person who has to be eradicated from society. So there is that slight difference there, but it's a similar, it's a similar idea. I, I see where you're coming from. The relationship between the golden calf and God's wanting to destroy the people of the golden, uh, the, all the people, and then the story of the blasphemer. But now with next week's parasha, we're reintroduced to, back to Har Sinai, and we're going to learn about the laws of the Shemitah and the Yovel.
Again, seven, seven, seven. Now, what's interesting, yeah, again, more sevens. But what's interesting is that the laws of the Shemitah are laws that are, they seem, and I, I do think that Sefer Vaikra is now pretty much over. It is now pretty much concluded in terms of our discussion of Kedushah or our relationship to the divine. And now we're going back to discussions of society and civil code in society. And the same way in Parshat Mishpatim, we discussed the civil laws of governing society just in terms of how to, how to deal with infractions. In Parashat Behar, we're going to discuss how society as a whole could elevate itself past merely keeping the law and not committing crime and how they can create a society in which goodness is kind of part of the system. If you want to understand Parashat Mishpatim, it's more like, Parashat Mishpatim is more like, don't do this, don't do that. If you kill someone, you pay for it. If you hurt someone's animal, you pay for that. But, you know, it's not... There's more to serving God than just not doing bad things. You can also have societies that, as on a societal level, does positive things. And that's Parshat Behar. And that would be the parallel to the Parshat Mishpatim. And that's why we're back at Har Sinai. Because while Parshat Mishpatim was a discussion of society not doing bad things, as we conclude this arc, which I'm showing here, we're now showing how society can now, on a societal level, engage in positive behavior. So that's Bezer Hashem next week. Uh, but it's a double parasha again, right? Okay. So we have to do Bihar and Chukotai. So my vacation is over. Hey, Baruch Adonai Lalam. Amen. 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 Amen.